Guys, we're going to start with a video this morning, and this may not be your cup of tea, and that's okay if it's not. Um, may not be your genre of music or uh, your favorite musician, but if you would, uh, entertain me, and for about two and a half minutes, watch this video, and we'll, we'll go from there, okay? This year, nominated for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, here is Bob Dylan. expecting that for church this morning? Uh, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many here were familiar with that song? Got to serve some? Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. Hey, if you, if you weren't, or maybe just to refresh your memory, uh, Bob Dylan was super huge in the 60s and even into the 70s, the early and mid 70s, but he's sort of fallen out in the later 70s and if you're familiar with his songs Nashville Skyline and some of the other things the the folk pop songs that made him famous this was totally out of the blue for him this song was unrelated to anything he'd done before and there was a reason for that because in 1979 Bob Dylan had professed faith in Christ and he had a three-year drought and out of that this was the this was his hit he won a Grammy for this that was the 1980 Grammy Awards 
and he won something like best male rock performance or something along that line. Um, out of his relative obscurity, he came back with this song. Now, you can read online Wikipedia or anything else, but um, he'd had a number of incidents as sort of spiritual, and he ended up being a follower of Jesus in California. He was going to a vineyard church. He was involved in intensive discipleship. He was sitting under people like Hal Lindsey and others, well-known teachers. And so this was a guy who, whose life had radically changed, and the first song that came out of that was this song. Now, uh, 1979, 1980, and 1981, the next three albums that he did were very biblical and Christian in their themes. So it was Slow Train Coming was the one. This song came from Saved. I always liked the graphic on the cover of that. And then Shot of Love came out three successive years. They were all out of this experience of faith in Christ and a total and radical change of life for Bob Dylan. Now, granted, he was enigmatic then. He's enigmatic now. If you go online and say, is Bob Dylan a Christian? Some people say, yes, he is. Others, no, he's not. It's a profession of faith that lasted for a while. No, it's still going on today. I really don't know, okay? And I'm not trying to pin him down on that. The thing that impresses me is he's a new Christian. He comes to faith, and the first song that he's characterized by is this notion that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you have, it doesn't matter where you live, you're high, you're low, you're somewhere in between, you're a creature on this planet, you're not the creator, and therefore you have to serve someone. You are in fact serving someone is the notion of that song. You can't escape it. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you can't help it, you're serving somebody. That's the thing. That's where we're going this morning. Let me ask you a couple questions along that line. Have you ever answered when your parents called you? Hopefully you can all say yes to that. Have you ever stopped at a stop sign? Ever enrolled in a school? Ever applied for a driver's license? Followed through on an employer's directions or a parent's directions? Ever purchased a hunting or fishing license? To the point today, did you ever come into this auditorium when someone at the podium asked you to? I hope you can all say yes but I know some of you don't. If you say yes to any of those questions, though, you have submitted to authority. You've submitted to authority. Webster's defines authority this way, the power or right to command, to act, to enforce obedience or make final decisions. Submission, the flip side of that, the act of submitting, yielding, or surrendering, we would add to an authority. So we're saying on the front end of this, you and I live in a world in which there's hierarchy. And sometimes some of us are in positions of authority and other times some of us are in positions of submission. And you, you cannot get away from this. It's the way the world's made. It's the cosmos as God created it. You can't get away from that. What this means for us is people in positions of authority have the power, it says, and the right to compel obedience or to restrict what you and I say or do there's power, there's the right to use that power to compel, to say you may do some things, you may not do other things. There are those of us in submission, in submission to authorities, and we are yielding our wills to the right of the person or the entity in authority over us to compel our behavior or our speech. And that's the way this world runs. 
And that was the theme of Bob Dylan's song. You're always serving someone. Ultimately, because all authority comes from God, right? As believers, we, we know this, or hopefully we know this. God's the apex of all authority. We've talked about this in Job, the Job series. God's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Nothing can happen in this universe apart from God's will, His permissive will, His active will, if you can parse them that way. God's the apex of all authority. Everything under God is in stratas, if you will, of authority and therefore of submission. And so two of the verses, we're not going to pursue this a lot in some of the scripture, but two of the key verses along this line are John 19, 11 and Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. But that passage in John 19, you've got Jesus, God the Son, now in our humanity, standing before the authority of the earth. So Pilate, the Roman governor, represents the Roman government and authority. And Jesus stands before him. You remember the Jews have accused him. They want him crucified. And Pilate knows he's innocent. So he's trying to get him off. But Jesus is not cooperative. So Pilate threatens him. And he says, don't you realize I have authority? I can crucify you or I can set you free. And Jesus' response to Pilate is this. You would have no authority. Now understand, when he says you would have no authority, he's implying Pilate does have the authority he says he has. Pilate does have authority to crucify. And he does have authority to set him free. You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus is saying, he acknowledges you have authority, but yours is not the ultimate authority. Because if you trace that line back, from Pilate you'd go to Caesar... If you read in the book of Daniel, we won't try and get into all this this morning. There would be far too much to cover. You go from Caesar, you go to demonic principalities and powers that oversee nations. You go to Satan above that, and you go to God above Satan. That everything is in a line of authority. And that the authority that Pilate has is derived authority ultimately from God himself. So Jesus, in this position of authority before Pilate, he says, ultimately the authority you have to condemn me has been given by the ultimate authority, by God himself, by my Father. I am under your authority. You do have authority, but your authority is derived and ultimately comes from God himself. Now, that's exactly what you see in Romans 13 as well. You know, you got 11 chapters of theology Paul gives in Romans, and then you start application at chapter 12. When you get to chapter 13, Paul says, and remember the setting for this. Paul was not writing in the United States of America, a democratic republic, right? He's, he's writing this under a king. Caesar means king. And Caesar and, frankly, the Jewish civic authority were generally opposed to Christianity. So when Paul writes this, he's not writing under favorable conditions. He says there's no authority on earth except from God and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. He's saying that about Jewish authorities that opposed him. He's saying that about Roman authorities that would actually at the end of his life would execute him and would persecute the church. He says those authorities were instituted by God. He goes on in verse 2 to say, when you resist those authorities, you are in fact resisting God who put those authorities in place. So as Christians, we should be coming to the plate saying we acknowledge there's hierarchy. God's at the top. 
And everything under that is derived authority ultimately by God so that when we obey the authorities God has placed above us, we are in fact submitting to God. We're serving somebody one way or the other. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord. By the way, it's worth saying here, none of us are autonomous. You know, we kid ourselves when we say, I'm doing what I please. We'll look at this in a little bit. There's no such thing as an autonomous individual because you and I live in God's world and we live in Satan's kingdom. So you and I are, whether we're conscious about it or not, we are following somebody's lead. We're in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of Satan. We are always serving one or the other, whether we intend to or not. This is all to introduce a short, this is only a three-week series, today and the next two Sundays, on authority and submission. And this is following up from discussions we had as a leadership group from the Sunday school sessions we did in April and May, and we simply wanted to fill out some of the topics that we started to cover there. Uh, we've been informed by others in the church, they said this is a hot topic issue, this is something we need to speak more fully to, and so hopefully that's what we'll accomplish in the next three Sundays. So today is just generally, it's the foundation, it's the basis that we do live in a world instituted by God in which there are positions of authority and positions of submission. We're called to live in submission to the authorities God has placed over us. That's today. On the 15th next week, we're going to look at specific areas of life. This is sort of a reality check. I assume most of us would say we live in submission to authority, but my suspicion is most of us do not or at least do not in key areas of life. And so that'll be a bit of a reality check. And by the way, next week, not today, we'll qualify. Is there a time when I should not obey the authorities God has put above me? Absolutely. But those are the rare exception. Do you, do you know, if you're for abortion, you try and make policy based on what are called the exceptions. What do you do in the case of rape and incest? We want to make policy based on rape and incest. How many abortions does that reflect in a year? But we want to make policy on that. What we want to make sure we're doing is we want our attitude about submission to the authority to be based on the command to submit, not the few exceptions where God tells us not to, okay? So we want to be careful. What we're selling this morning is the command to be submissive to the authorities. There are some exceptions, and we'll look at those next week. And then the last and probably the most hot, uh, hot topic button of any of these would be uh, authority and submission in the context of male and female. This is a big one still today. It has been in the church, has been in the culture for quite a while. Because these may touch on some nerves for some of us, uh, I'll be available and some of the other elders will be available after service today, next week, and the following week. If you have questions, if you want clarification, if you want to say I disagree, that's fine. We'll have a nice chat. So 10 minutes after service ends, if you'll come up front, if you want to discuss. And if you don't, that's fine. But we're just trying to cover bases. So one of the reasons that we're trying to give more airtime to this topic is because there's a sense in which the, the concepts of authority and submission have become dirty words in our culture. In the time and the place we live, when you talk to people, and I don't just mean people out there. I mean people in the church. I mean people in Lion and Lamb Church. When you talk about submitting to authorities, you often get an automatic response that's negative. And so if we say, what's the deal? Why are we so averse to the concept of some in authority to which we give our willing submission? 
What's at play there? What's wrong? What's going on? Let me offer a few suggestions. You might have more of your own. The first one is simply this. We're proud. You know, humans are proud. In our fallenness, pride is at the root of every sin we commit. Pride is saying, I am who I determine I am. I will do what I determine I want to do. Pride is the basis of of all of our sin. And so it's certainly at the basis of this one too. And one of the things I think you'll see in Scripture that develops is, when Adam and Eve fell, they sinned and there was spiritual death because there was separation from God. But guys, what you see is that our humanity degrades over time. You know, not only do you see great ages of lifespans in the early pages of the Bible physically, you see that diminishing after the fall. Well, what happens physically is also happening spiritually. Humanity is degrading over time. We're becoming more proud. Another reason is this, and this is thinking of the news in the last, maybe even the last couple of decades. There have been tons of people in positions of authority that have abused their authority or that have operated at a personal level in a way that has has brought shame or embarrassment to their positions of authority. In other words, Roman Catholic priests, Protestant pastors, civic and political figures, you know, hands caught in the cooking jar. What we've done is we've said, those people have abused their positions of authority. The person is not worth my respect and my submission. And we don't detach the person from the role of authority that they occupy. And that's what we're required to do. But that's another reason I think they're considered dirty words. Relativism, we live in a fairly relativistic culture in which we say, truth is what I say it is. I am who I say I am. So I'm the authority. So no one else is an authority over me. So if you tell me I've got to submit to someone else, you're you're speaking against the grain of my philosophy of life. Truth is what I say it is. I'm the master of my own soul. Uh, Feminism has driven this notably in the last decades. And please understand what I mean by feminism. I do not mean equal pay. I do not mean the right to vote. I do not mean respect. I don't mean any of those things. What I mean is the notion or the philosophy that men and women are somehow equally created in role and function, that apart from some plumbing, there's no real difference between the sexes. Biblically, you simply cannot get there. It's not true in any way, shape, or form. But a a form of feminism says it is. It's wrong. And that form of feminism, sometimes based on the Bible, sometimes not, says we don't like the notion of submission. (laughs) I was listening to a message from a church here in Topeka yesterday was a woman pastor preaching and she read Galatians 3 which says there's neither male nor female in Christ and then later she read 1 Timothy 2 which says I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man now she explained Galatians 3 a little bit but all she said about 1 Timothy 2 was I don't like the passage Now, here's a woman teaching in a church, reading a passage that says women don't teach men in the church. And she says, I don't. And I I kid you not, she made no attempt whatsoever to say what the passage meant. She simply said, I don't like it. I've told God I don't like it. God has come and wept with, with me when I've wept over this passage. Like, well, that's convenient. But so so feminism has an axe to grind against this concept. And the last one, more recently, the politics around marriage and sexual identity. 
Guys, if we can redefine marriage, marriage isn't an institution given by God. It's something we created. There is no God. If you and I can determine not only who I am, but what I am, we're saying we are our own gods and creators. And therefore, we don't have to be submissive to anyone or anything because I'm God. I'm a man today. I'm a woman tomorrow. Why? Because I chose to be. I'm autonomous. It's my way. So there's lots going on in the culture, and it's not just out there. You know, there's a reason we say read our Bibles. One is to gain God's mind, but guys, the other is to wash our minds. You and I are always drinking water from the culture. You can't help it. You can't help it. And so you and I are imbibing to some degree some of the stuff that's coming out of the culture. The church imbibes that. We've got to be aware of that. And that's some of what, in, in spades, is coming out of the culture today. Now, for all that, at some level, everybody knows there's such a thing as hierarchy and authority and submission. So every time someone says to themselves, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going or what's next? All of those questions indicate we're not autonomous. We're not the creator. We're the creature. Especially every time we go to a funeral... And we know we're, we're headed to dust. We're not the creator. Our lives are lived under some other power, and it's not us. You can't help but get that. You can't help but understand that, whether we're willing to recognize it or not. Now, do me a favor. Use your imaginations for just a minute. And imagine that we get what we want. And I say we collectively here, not that everyone wants this equally, but just say that we live in a world in which there's no authority and there's no required submission. So we, we're, we're each doing as we please. No one has authority or right to compel someone else to do something, okay? No authority, no submission. Now, I'll qualify this on the front end. If that was the case, <clears throat> radical egalitarianism, you could still say individuals can cooperate mutually with each other. They can form bonds or co-ops or something along that line to do things together without an implied authority structure. You could do that. But what you'd find is that you can only do that at a very small and restricted level because the truth is anything that gets any size at all organizationally, it requires hierarchy or it won't work. So you could argue, Mike, yes, you can have these levels of cooperation. Things could still be done. Absolutely. But what you would find is most things couldn't be done. So imagine this. Uh, children do as they please. How's that for a nightmare, Mom and Dad? Children have no compunction to obey. You know, not only would children be miserable and parents would be miserable, but you know what would happen? We'd start, we would stop having kids, right? If you've been in a household where the kids rule the roost, is that really what you and I want? It's not. We'd quit having kids. There's no employers and there's no employees. You don't go to someone else to get a job because they become your authority. It doesn't happen. There are no large businesses and there's therefore no group, no organization, no entity large enough and complex enough to develop the tech stuff we enjoy today, the science stuff, the medical stuff we enjoy today, the agribusiness stuff we enjoy today, those things aren't developed because there aren't entities big enough and complex enough to put all those elements of research and development together. They wouldn't happen. 
There are no cities, there are no states, there are no provinces, there are no nations, because all of those are predicated on lines of hierarchy and authority and submission. There are no fire departments, no police forces, there are no militaries. Each of those, if you're in them, and many of you in here have been, are absolutely based on hierarchy as they need to be, just to be organized and efficient. If someone abused you or your family, there would be no 911 to dial. There would be no agency you could run to for help. It wouldn't exist. We'd be on our own. If radical, if total equality of authority sounds appealing to any of us in any way, it's only because we haven't thought through what that would look like in reality. And what we really call a world in which there's no authority and no submission is we call that anarchy. What you'll find in the Bible, guys, is anarchy is the worst form of life lived in community with others. No governance, no authority, no hierarchy, no required submission is the worst thing you can happen. Every person for themselves is the worst thing that can happen. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. Its interpretation can be a little fuzzy, but it essentially says this. Uh, if I'm a person who suffers abuse, I have levels of authority I can appeal to for help. They're, they have greater authority than I do. I can go to them and I can appeal for help. Sometimes those authorities over me, though, they might be entertaining graft, bribery. They may, in fact, be the means by which someone's abusing me, the authorities that exist over me. But the conclusion is, a king is good for the land, the apex of all the authorities that he's been referring to, is good for the land because the land is productive because there's an authority structure in place. Bad authority, the scripture says, is better than no authority. Bad governance is better than no governance. Ecclesiastes 5. This is a bit of a ridiculous example, but take this to the extreme. And by the way, that's one of the things you can do with philosophies and notions. If you say, here's a, here's a thought about life or how life could be lived, take it to the extreme to see where it goes. Because that's a helpful lens by which you can say, does this thing make sense or not? Your body and mind, they respond to an authority. It's our head, it's our mind, it's our brain. If you take that away, if you say there's not a nervous system, a sympathetic or a parasympathetic nervous system by which your brain and your mind controls your body, what can you do? You can't eat, you can't open your eyes, you can't, you can't uh, feed yourself, you can't hug, you can't be hugged, you can't help, you can't be helped. You're a blob of tissue. If there's no authority structure that, that tells members of the body what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And that's a ridiculous example, but the fact that it's ridiculous makes the point. You and I live in a world that's based on, it's predicated on hierarchy, authority, and submission. And you can't live life on this planet, in this cosmos, in this universe apart from it. It doesn't exist. The notion that you and I, or that the culture generally, can live without submission to authority is ludicrous. We don't inhabit that cosmos. The roles of hierarchy, authority, and submission are ultimately meant to display God's benevolence. Remember that even though our humanity and this world is fractured by sin, 
hierarchy was there from the very beginning. You remember when God made Adam first and then Eve, that was hierarchy. When Adam names Eve, naming in the Bible means authority over. Adam was the authority over his wife Eve. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll get into in two weeks, sorry. But from the very creation, you see hierarchy. That is the world in which we live. And by the way, you know when it says in Genesis 1, we were created in God's image? Hierarchy is a part of God's image, and we can't get into this much, but in theology, we say we believe in the Trinity. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. When we talk about God and God's will, we say God has one will. There's not a will of the Son, a will of the Father, and a will of the Spirit. There's one will. But somehow within that, the Father institutes the will of the Trinity. So that what you see in the roles of hierarchy you and I have in our families, in churches, in governance, whatever it is, you see a little bit of the image of the Trinity lived out. That it doesn't, it doesn't require different levels of deity for a distinction to be made in the Trinity, nor does it require that you or I are better or less better based on a role of authority or submission. It implies none of that because none of that applies to the Trinity. Since it's God that establishes all authority when you and I obey authority, when we live in willing submission to the authorities God has placed over us, we're in fact at the end of the day submitting ourselves to God. Authority and submission aren't dirty words. They don't imply essential superiority or inferiority. We'll talk about this here in a minute related to Jesus and God the Father. They aren't meant as a means of one class of persons harming another. What you'll hear today related to terms like patriarchy or hierarchy are that these are artificial means of one class or sex of people putting down another. That's not true biblically. They aren't artificial social constructs. They relate to how God created this world. It's how the Trinity operates within itself, and it's how God has benevolently designed us to operate as well. So there's hierarchy. There's authority and submission ordained by God, and that arrangement is necessary for life as we know it. Okay, so far? So, why do we have such a, a, a tough time with all this? Why, why is submission such an issue for us? Why is that? Where does that come from? The Spirit, and I say Spirit as a persona as well as an attitude of philosophy, the Spirit that engenders rebellion against God-ordained relationships of submission originated with Satan. Didn't start with us. It originated with Satan. When we thumb our nose at the authorities God has placed over us, or when we submit to them only when it pleases us, when it suits us, we're living in the spirit of rebellion that originated with Satan. And guys, if you take nothing else away from here this morning, this is the thing I want you to take away. You know, if I uh, hit you in the nose, and uh, I come to apologize you le- to you later, and I say something like, uh, I'm sorry I was a bad person. That's not really what you, you want to hear. I'm sorry I hit you in the nose. You want to be specific, right? When we confess our sin, we're saying the same thing God does about our sin specifically. We own it, okay? We own our sin. I think this is what's going on. Many of us at many times in our life are living in rebellion against God because we refuse to submit willingly with a good attitude to the authorities God has placed in our mind, but we defend the attitude instead of owning the sin, okay? 
So if we're living rebellious lives, all I'm suggesting is this morning is that we own it, that we're honest about it, and that we recognize that when we choose not to live submissive to the authorities God has placed in our life, we say that's what we're doing. We don't sugarcoat it. We say that's exactly what we're doing. That's what I want to do. One of our children, we were talking to her about obedience one day and in this moment of childlike innocence, innocence and honesty, she simply said, but I don't want to obey. And I was like, yeah, we understand that. She, she, was, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't tuned in enough to try and hide it. That was, she was just being, I don't want to obey. That's what I'm suggesting for us. When we see those areas in life in which we have this crummy attitude towards submitting to the authorities God has placed over us, Let's just admit this is from the pit of hell and that's what we're embracing, okay? That's all I'm suggesting. When we disobey or disrespect our parents, we are entertaining the spirit of rebellion that originated with Satan. No less than that. When wives disrespect their husbands, it's the spirit of satanic rebellion that's in that. When employees work against their employer, it's the same spirit. When citizens flaunt civil government it's the spirit of satan that they're embracing now we don't say that to ourselves right i'm for satan we don't wear pentagrams we don't have the goats or whatever it was from the video we saw earlier but that is in fact what we're doing listen to this from ephesians 2. now paul is talking in the to the past of the believers in ephesus so these are believers in jesus They've been saved. They belong to God. But listen to what he says their past was typified by. He says, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Spiritually, you were dead to God. You had no spiritual life. You were following the course of this world. You were. He doesn't say this as a, as a possibility. He says, you were following the course of this world. If you're not a Christian, and people don't get this, you aren't autonomous, you're not doing as you please, you are in Satan's kingdom, and you are following the course he's laid out for you. Absolutely. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. You were following the spirit that is now at work, and listen to this phrase, this is ESV, in the sons of disobedience. When you, before Christ... You were following the world like everyone else follows the world, whether you knew it or not. And the spirit that's at work in the world today, Paul calls, is disobedience. You were the sons or the children of disobedience. It's what was characteristic of you. You couldn't help it because we're born rebels. And the, the spirit that's at work in the world is the spirit of disobedience disrespecting the authorities that God has set over us. So we need to be very clear. When we have an attitude that refuses to humbly submit to the authorities God has placed over us, we need to own that the attitude is demonic and it is satanic. And it's not a little, a little thing in my mind that's a quirky issue at the moment. We are embracing the course of the world, the spirit that is now at work, in the children of disobedience. James 3 says something very similar. He's comparing uh, worldly wisdom and God's form of wisdom. And God's form of wisdom is meek 
and it's generous and it gives way where it's able to. And in contrast to that, James says that selfish ambition, which is part of the wisdom of this world, is demonic. When you and I are saying to ourselves, I'm too important, I'm too smart to obey my parent or my employer or church leaders, we'll talk about that next week, or these other things, we're simply entertaining the same spirit that James is talking about, worldly wisdom, the spirit of the course of this world, the spirit of disobedience, a demonic, satanic attitude. It's nothing less than that. That's its origin. That's always where it comes from. We're going to be in another series, I think, starting in August. I'll be talking more specifically about Satan on one of those Sundays. <clears throat> but for this morning, sort of the origin, where does all that come from? Uh, there's a passage in Isaiah 14, verse 14, in which God is speaking through Isaiah to the king of Babylon. And he's describing the king of Babylon, what's going to happen to him. But it's clear, just as, is, just as it is in Ezekiel 28, that God is addressing a human king and at one point speaks past that king to the spiritual power behind him, which is Satan. And so in Isaiah 14, 14, with that in mind, this is what God says Satan was saying to himself. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. You say, what's the origin of the spirit of disobedience? What's the origin of the attitude that says, I won't submit to the authority above me? It's this. You know, from Ezekiel uh, 28, Satan's this covering cherub. He's this graceful, glorious, beautiful creature, but he's not God. And he basically says to himself, I don't like the sphere I've been allotted. I'm going to elevate myself to another sphere, another role of authority greater than where I've been placed. I'm going to become like God. That is the spirit of rebellion against authority. That's where it originates from. And when you and I say to ourselves, consciously or unconsciously, however we defend it in our mind, I'm not willing to live humbly in the sphere God's allotted me, I'm going to raise myself up, and I don't mean a better job. I don't mean education. I'm going to raise myself up above the authorities God has placed on me. We're saying exactly what Satan did before this earth was created. So as often and to the degree that we refuse to submit to the authorities God has placed in our lives, we're living in the same spirit of rebellion as Satan. We're choosing the spirit that brought Death, disease, violence, murder, lying, and betrayal. We need to own that. That's what I'm suggesting this morning. That sin of rebellion, the, the refusal to live in submission, is that. We need to own that. We're the sons of disobedience. We're living like the sons of disobedience. We're living like members of Satan's kingdom and not God's. There's a great work. If you're a literature major, you'll probably have read John Milton's Paradise Lost. It's a bit of a tome. It's a bit of waiting for us today, just the older English style. But it's a great imaginative look of what it would have looked like for Satan to fall and the creation of the earth and what that looked like coming into the garden, Adam and Eve. But one of the phrases that's well known out of that book is this, Satan saying, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. In other words, no matter how bad life might be, lived under my own autonomy, I'll take that rather than occupy any role of servanthood or submission 
in the greatest, most glorious kingdom available. And that's what humans say to ourselves. And that's what you and I are entertaining in our minds when we refuse to willingly submit to the powers and the authorities God has placed over us. Wind down here on Philippians 2, we often think that if we submit, we're giving up something. We're losing something. We're diminishing our life. We're becoming less than we could if we submit to the authorities God's placed over us. And in, in fact, the opposite is true. You see this in Jesus. Jesus is both the ultimate example of humility and willing submission. And then he's also the ultimate example of authority, of glory and authority. And you see this in the same passage in Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 8 say this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he, he was, this isn't saying he looked like God, he was God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, related to his incarnation. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So within the Trinity, God the Father, somehow, whatever this looked like, says to God the Son, I want you to leave the glories of heaven. I want you to take on humanity. I want you to walk the dusty roads of that land down there. I want you to live submissive to the law I gave to Israel. And then I want you to be crucified for the sins of the world. And the Son says, okay, I will do that. And so he does. No one should think that submission is an inferior role if it is the role that Jesus himself willingly took on. Now, this is the lesson of John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and he says, if I'm the master and I wash your feet, then you shouldn't have a problem washing each other's feet. That's the same notion here. Submission is not an inferior role. Submission does not imply any sort of inferiority other than the degree of authority given. But it doesn't say one is better than another. Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. And what comes out of that? Verses 9 through 11. Because he submitted himself to that degree, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's the Father up to? Son, I want you to submit yourself to all this. The Son says, okay. And then the Father says, and I want you to do that so that in your humanity, I can make you the ultimate authority to which every inferior bit of humanity, every inferior authority bows before you. Now, not only as the second person of the Trinity, but as the perfect man, the, the one who fully represents the Father in his humanity. So the submission led to this glorious exaltation to the highest pinnacle of authority. So Jesus is the model not just of, of glory or kingship or authority. He's also the ultimate model of submission. When you and I live a lifestyle characterized by submission to the authorities over us, we look like Christ. And when you and I choose to work against the authorities attitudinally or verbally or in action, we are not walking in Jesus' steps. We are, in fact, walking in a way that represents the life we had before 
that was ruled by Satan, the god of this world. This is the thing for me. This is the simplifying element of all of this. If we settle our hearts and minds on taking our place in our God-given roles of authority, if we buy into that, and we say a proud rejection of authority is not an option for me, I get it, then everything else is simply a matter of prayerful application. And we'll talk about that more next week, prayerful application. But this is the flip side. If we don't buy into this heart and soul, then we'll just go through life choosing when we submit and when we don't. And that simply means we're not submitted at all. We're still living like we belong in Satan's kingdom. Listen to what Bob Dylan said at one of his concerts in 1979. It's the year that that album came out and he sang that song. He said, you know, we're living in the end times. The scriptures say in the last days, perilous times will be at hand. Men shall become lovers of their own selves, blasphemous, heavy and high minded. It was true then, true today. Take a look at the Middle East. Isn't it interesting? It's still the same. This is almost 40 years earlier. We're heading for a war. I told you the times they are changing. If you're old enough, you know that's one of his songs. And they did. I said the answer was blowing in the wind. <laughs> and it was. I'm telling you now, Jesus is coming back. And he is. And there is no other way of salvation. Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. See, he got, whatever else he got or didn't get, he got, we're serving somebody. And so my question to us this morning is, who is it? There's only two options. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. Who is it? You've got on the bottom of your study sheet something I hope you'll take home. Where is God calling me to submit my will to his? Almost certainly, guys, every one of us in here has areas where we're saying, I don't want to submit to that authority. Where is that? Who is that? What does that look like? Uh, what God-given authority do I need to ask forgiveness from? You know, I was a young guy full of myself when I left my parents' home and went to college. And I think it was less than three months, I realized what an ass I was. I was out from their house. I saw how selfish, how mean-spirited, how little I was. About three months later, I wrote a letter of apology to them and just said, I, I get it. I wasn't respectful. I didn't appreciate what they wanted for me. But who do we look at and say, man, I've blown it. As somebody under authority, I've blown it. Or if I've been one in authority, who do I need to ask forgiveness from? When this group of guys went through a video series not long ago on pornography, and it was talking about the impact of, of people in our lives earlier when we were growing up. And I realized, man, I had huge holes in my own life from a lack of my father's influence. And I don't say that to blame my dad. Busy guy. Some of you know what that looks like. Big family, ran his own business. It's like he just didn't have much left to give. But I realized, man, I, I missed out on a lot because of that. Well, I wrote my daughters a letter. And I said, hey, I, I've loved being your dad. I've loved every minute of it. And, and hope you felt that. But I'm apologizing to you for the ways I'm sure I've blown it as your father figure. I don't know the ways that I have may, maybe negatively impacted you as that authority figure in your life. But I want you to know I've always loved you, wanted to do right by you, and hope you can feel the benefit of that. So maybe we've been in a position of authority and we realize we look back, I've not been Christ-like in that authority either. So if you're part of the worship team, come on up now. So we just ask ourselves, who are we serving? What's that look like? 
Are we owning our sin of disobedience if that's where we're living? Let's pray, and then the worship team is going to lead us as we humble ourselves and give God His due. Father, help us to see pride in our own lives. Help us to see the ways in which we are following not you and Christ our Savior, but Satan, your enemy and ours. Father, would you help us to have the aroma of Christ in us and around us, because like him, we are willfully, gladly submitting ourselves ultimately to you and your authority. And we trust you, Lord, for the outcomes of all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.